Well, Luke chapter 10. We are in our series. We started last week called Loving Your Neighbor. And I'm going to read our passage. Uh, we're back in Luke 10. And I'm going to read uh, the beginning of the, Good, of the Good Samaritan passage in Luke 10, verse 25 to 28. And then we're going to pick up with where Jesus goes next. And that really shapes um, this, the, the call to love our neighbor. So beginning in verse 25, Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And then picking up in verse 38, after Jesus shares the parable of the Good Samaritan in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Last week, we started this sermon series, Loving Your Neighbor, and we looked at, uh, we had two big ideas. One, who is your neighbor? And what we learned was that your neighbor, as Jesus is defining it here, is anyone in need, but then also how to love them. And Jacob talked about practical, concrete ways of loving your neighbor, that it's not just uh, a mental ascent. We don't just talk about loving our neighbor, but it leads to obedient action, and he listed the various verbs in the passage of what this looks like practically. But there's a real tension in loving your neighbor, and that is, and it's kind of obvious after we say it, but loving your neighbor, loving someone in need in really concrete, practical ways is hard. <laughs> it is hard work, loving and serving and caring and ministering in a way that cares for someone in need. And we're going to talk in the coming weeks about what this looks like practically. We're going to talk about loving our neighbor as a way of hospitality, about uh, being uh, present with them in pain and circumstances of life. We're going to talk about what it looks like to enter into uh, cultural solidarity with people who are different than us. We're going to talk about what this looks like globally. But in every respect, it's challenging. It's hard. And we can find ourselves at a place where we're just discouraged, where we just want to throw in the towel, where we've done it. There was a point when we were younger and we were passionate about loving people, but life has a way of beating us up and making us cynical, and we want to just throw in the towel and take the path of least resistance. We can find ourselves much like I often found myself in college, where I'd go to the bank machine, and I'd insert my debit card, and it, and it would flash on the screen, insufficient funds. And I'll try it again, take it out like the old Nintendo cartridge, blow on it, put it back in, enter the thing as if this is going to help, insufficient funds. And, and I'm thinking, oh, who took my money? 
And then I remember that I went out to eat the night before, went to a movie, and so for that day I'm having crackers with barbecue sauce. <laughs> Insufficient funds. I don't have the money. I spend it on something else. You know, many of us in life, we, fear, we feel like we have insufficient spiritual energy, energy to enter into the problems that God calls us to address. And what we need, what we need to love for the long haul, because that's what we're talking about, not just love in little spurts from here or there, but to love for the long haul of our life, we need to be replenished spiritually. Uh, one author and pastor, Eugene Peterson, he gets to the heart of this so well and actually and talks about the ways that sometimes churches, we're all about loving actions on the outside, but we don't have the spiritual capital inside. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, The volume of business in religion far outweighs the spiritual capital of its leaders. <laughs> Could unpack that all night. What he's saying is the volume of business, the action, doing things for God, programs of love, often outweighs the spiritual capital, the intimacy and love for God. He continues, the initial consequence is that leaders substitute image for substance, satisfying the, cus the customer temporarily, but only temporarily. On good days, deny that there is any problem. Easy to do since business is so good. On bad days, hoping that someone will show up with the infusion of capital. No one is going to show up. The final consequence is bankruptcy. The bankruptcies are dismayingly frequent. What he's pointing to is there's this temptation to do religious business without spiritual capital. To preach sermons about loving others, to have programs for loving others, and to not invest in the spiritual internal capital that enables us to do this for the long haul. And in our text, we're reminded that the second great commandment is preceded by the first. In order to love your neighbor as yourself, you must love God. As the lawyer says, and Jesus himself quotes this later, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind. How do we love for the long haul? It begins by loving God holistically. And so this morning, that's what we want to talk about. If we want to love in concrete ways, if we want to love our neighbor, those in need in concrete ways, we need to love God in some concrete ways. And so this morning, let's look at how loving God leads to loving others. How loving God leads to loving others. How do we love God? First, we love God by learning from him. We love God by, as Mary does in the passage we read, by sitting at his feet. Uh, Mary is a positive example here. It says, Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary here is loving God. One of the ways that uh, it summarizes loving God with all your mind. Bringing our cognitive intellect into our love for God. Worship and love for God is not devoid of how we think. We love God by sitting at his feet and learning from him. And this is in contrast to the priest and the Levite and the lawyer who come to God with a posture of, of uh, having it all together. And Mary, she sits at his feet. And so what posture do you have with God? Do you come as an expert 
or do you come as a learner? Uh, this summer, I found myself in the position of being a baseball coach for uh, seven and eight-year-old kids uh, in uh, machine pitch. And I don't know how I ended up in this. Uh, they sent out an email, and they asked if uh, they said they needed some coaches. And so I responded by saying I would be happy to be an assistant coach. And then they responded back saying, great, you are a head coach. So that's what I'm doing. I'm a head coach for seven- and eight-year-old boys. And I wrote Jeffrey Mulhahy in it. And uh, so thanks, Jeff. We're doing this together. And when you're coaching seven- and eight-year-olds, oftentimes they're easily distracted. And it's really funny because we're beginning with the fundamentals. And I, and, uh, truth be told, I take this way too seriously. I have like programs. I send out practice sheets before we get there. And I enter and I'm really excited and idealistic. And these kids, you know, I mean, some could be in the major leagues one day. You know, I got to steward this opportunity really well. And then that idealism enters into reality. And I find myself in the practice field, and the kids were trying to teach them the fundamentals of how to throw, and they're like, I already know how to throw a ball. I already know how to swing a bat. And you look at them, and you think, well, you don't really know. You don't, you're not throwing it rightly. You're not throwing it well. You might launch a ball, but we're going to learn how to really throw. And so they kinda, there's this temptation for kids to complain. But a kid who comes ready to learn, a kid who comes with the posture of entering into practice ready to engage and learn how to do it right. There's opportunity for them. How many times do we enter into our walk with God with it all figured out? I already know, God. I I already have it all figured out. I I, I know what you're asking of me. I already know I need to love people, God. I already know we enter in and we think we have the fundamentals down and over and over and over again. Jesus, just like he does right here, wants to point out the inconsistencies. He wants to challenge us. What's the posture that you have with God? Do you come as a learner or do you come as an expert? And one of the uh, neat things is when we come to God in a posture of humility, seeking to be a learner, we find that he will challenge us. He challenges us. We see it in our text. What are some of the things we learn about God in our passage? What preconceived notions do we bring in our relationship to God that he wants to challenge? There's a few we find right here in our text. Uh, One preconceived notion that we can have in our walk with God is that God knowledge equals godliness. I think that knowledge about God equals spiritual maturity, equals godliness. Uh, The lawyer, the priest, the Levite, they knew the law. They were experts in the law. And yet they missed what the law was all about. They could pass the exam. They had a lot of head knowledge and information, but they had little practice of living it out. God knowledge does not equal godliness. It's easy to miss the heart of God, even though we may know a lot about him. And uh, part of that God knowledge, part of properly understanding who God is and what he calls us to, one of the other preconceived notions we can bring to God is that God is just concerned with personal salvation. And it's to think that the gospel equals just being saved for heaven. 
And in our text, we're reminded, what's the question that the lawyer asked Jesus? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And at the, by the end of it, after saying, I need to love God and love others, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Go, do this, and you shall live. One of the things this challenges us, this reminds us, that the gospel is not just about personal salvation. God wants to transform our lives today. How we live is a reflection of where our hope ultimately less, ultimately rests. God calls us to live out loving others. Uh, one, a man of God, John Perkins, who was extremely influential in the civil rights movement has, and has continued to be to this day, he puts it well. About some of the on, he puts some of the challenge of loving others well in our theology. He says this, One reason that the expression of the love of God is so often limited in Western society is that we do not expect it to change society and people except in a very spiritualized and narrowly defined way. We see the gospel as primarily rescuing us from hell and getting us to heaven. And we have lost sight of thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And when we do not expect it to change lives, we will not see it change lives. When we do not expect the gospel to change our lives, then we won't see it change our life. The gospel is the good news of future salvation, but also the good news of present transformation. That the same God who wants to reconcile us to himself commissions us to bring reconciliation to others. We need to allow Jesus to challenge us in this way. What, do we bring the preconceived notion that God is just concerned with future salvation? Another preconceived notion we bring to God, and I really want to press us here. Uh, one preconceived stereotype that some of us have is that God protects, protects culturally conditioned hierarchies, especially those of different cultures and gender. It's interesting in the, the interaction with Martha and Mary that we can sometimes miss, but the first century Jews would have been very challenged and would have understand exactly where Jesus was going with this. Uh, Martha is busy serving Jesus. And why is she doing this? She's serving Jesus because that was the culturally conditioned custom of the day. When you had a guest, you served the guest, and Jesus was her guest. But also, it was the culturally conditioned response of a woman to a man. She was there to serve him, to meet his needs. And yet... Mary is praised. Mary, who it says, sits at his feet to learn his teaching. Jesus is challenging their culturally conditioned view of how women relate to men. Jesus praises Mary for sitting at his feet as a disciple. Is Jesus challenging your culturally conditioned views of people of other cultures and gender? Paul does this as well. It's not just Jesus. Paul routinely speaks of and references in Philippians 4, Romans 16, and other places, women who partnered with him in ministry. And partnering with Paul in ministry was not just that they served Paul. 
partnering with Paul in ministry was that these were leaders, disciple makers, missionaries, joining God's work of reconciliation in the world. Jesus and Paul elevate the role of women in ministry. What preconceived notion do we bring that Jesus wants to challenge? So how are we relating to Jesus? Are we allowing him to challenge our culturally conditioned views in life? Or do we sit at his feet, humbly coming to him for guidance and to learn and to be taught? We love God by learning from God. Also, we love God by delighting in what we learn, by delighting in his commands. In order to love for the long haul, uh, we need to not only be about doing and learning the right things, we need to allow what we learn to shape how we think and what we believe. We need to move from just understanding to action to actually delighting in the good work that God is calling us to. We're reminded here that Jesus calls us, he says, love God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's not just our mind. It's not just our strength, but it's our heart and soul that we can grow to actually delight in the calling God puts in our life. In verse 38, Martha, it says, Martha welcomed him into her house. Martha welcomes Jesus. And then we get a clue of her motivation in serving. It says in verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So many of us can relate to this. Martha is serving Jesus. She's wanting to be a good host. She's wanting to care for him. And she sees her sister just sitting there just enjoying conversation, and she's a little bitter. (laughs) She's investing the hard work. She's wanting to do a good thing. She's wanting to serve, but she can't help but notice the actions of her sister and others. Man, I can relate with this. Uh, Maybe you can relate. Maybe you found yourself uh, relating with your roommates. You enter into the kitchen, and the dishes are dirty, and you think, I am going to love my roommates. I am going to serve them. They might be watching TV, but I'm going to love and serve them. And you sit and you start doing the dishes, but you just, you're just looking at the dishes, looking at them sitting right over there, looking at the dishes, looking at them sitting right over there. And you, and you want them to know. You want them to know. How's the show? I, you may not have noticed you're watching TV. I, I, I'm serving over here, scrubbing. Man, you... How long has this spaghetti been on this plate? You know, how long did you leave this on here? I'll just scrub it for you. There's this temptation to want to serve others, but really the motivation is just serving ourselves. Or maybe you find yourself, you love serving uh, your community and you're part of leading a small group and you are cleaning the home because you want it to be nice and hospitable for when they come over and your spouse is doing the godly work of prayer in this moment. And so you're cleaning the house, you're getting it ready, and here they are being all spiritual and praying, and you just get frustrated. Like, I don't want to do this alone. Often in our serving, we see our motivation and it's self-seeking. And what God wants to do, he wants to move serving from just being 
duty to delight. And there can be a contrast between serving in a way that, as the lawyer does, it says he's seeking to justify himself. Seeking to justify ourselves in our service. There's a contrast between serving as duty and delight. What, what are some of the ways in which there's a contrast in how we serve? As I find my bearings here. Aha, here we are. Uh, one, often serving with duty, we're often motivated to relieve self-guilt. Motivated to relieve guilt. And so we want to do good things. But delight finds genuine satisfaction in caring for another. One is motivated by satisfying guilt. One sees it as a means to an end of actually enjoying it. You know, we can find this, we can see this play out in how we serve in a host of different areas. Take, for example, addressing issues of race and racial reconciliation. Often, the motivation for white people can be white guilt. And we could be motivated by feeling guilty about some things, and so we think, ah, oh, you know, I guess maybe we should. And there's a place for grieving the past, and that is certainly a part of entering into the story of bringing reconciliation and even grieving and repenting of expressions of racism in the present. But if our motivation is just to satisfy white guilt, we will end up perpetuating the problem. We will end up entering in with paternalistic attitudes with minorities where the idea is, hey, you know what? Here I am, a kind person, and you can have a seat at the table. I won't necessarily learn from you. I won't raise you up to have a voice on the matter. I'll lecture to you about the things you can do and what needs to change and what needs to happen. It ends up staying with this paternalistic voice rather than, rather than delighting in African-American culture, delighting in the culture of minorities, seeing the beauty and the contributions that they have to make the way in which minorities can lead us, placing ourselves in positions of submission and delight. There is great joy in serving other people. There is great joy in learning and appreciating cultures different than our own. And this is one of the great contributions of the film Black Panther, that it celebrates African culture. Oftentimes, white people, we look at Africa, and we just think, oh, you know, those poor kids in need of our help. And we think that all Africa is is people in poverty with nothing to offer. And what they need is us Westerners to go over and to save them. And friends, that is a gross misunderstanding of what Africa is and what it has to offer. There is so much beauty, so much intellect, so much to learn from the different cultures of the world. You know, we need to move past this attitude that sees serving those in need as just us there to offer a helping hand. We need to understand the ways in which others can serve and help us. Duty is often just motivated by guilt. Delight is motivated by joy in serving others. Also, duty often is a means to self-applause, and delight 
is a means to promote others. Duty is often motivated to just promote ourselves, and delight promotes other people. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 20. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the, and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Over and over and over again, Jesus, he addresses the religious leaders of the day that, made, that did religious acts as a means of self-promotion. And we can do this too. We can enter into causes uh, not to promote other people, not to care for them, but, but as a means of promoting ourself. Another uh, cultural issue of our day is the role of women. And we see this in the Me Too movement. And some people enter into this cause with seemingly selfless motives, but really, it's about themselves. Uh, one, uh, this was expressed recently with a man, Eric Schneiderman, who was the New York Attorney General and was suing Harvey Weinstein. And it comes uh, to the surface that he himself personally was engaging in acts of abuse toward women. Publicly, he promoted the cause of women, but personally, he was an abuser. You know, often we can be publicly engaged in issues, but personally making it all about ourselves. You know, one of the ways this can be expressed is in our engagement with social media. Do we enter into causes on social media just liking things with faux outrage? Uh, using the cause as a means of promoting ourselves? Uh, maybe there's a place for not posting something, just doing the right thing, whether anyone sees it or not. Duty makes it about promoting ourselves, but delight takes joy in promoting the cause and other people. Also, duty prioritizes commands for personal benefit, and delight is open to being challenged. In our text, as Jacob pointed out last week, the lawyer and the Levite and the priest use God's commands to avoid serving someone else. They would have been walking back from serving in the temple, and they wouldn't have wanted to become ritually unclean, and so they go to the other side of the road rather than caring for someone in need. They prioritized commands that promoted themselves, that cared for themselves, that were self-seeking, rather than understanding the heart of God in the matter. So what can this mean? We need to be challenged by God. Um. You know, there's going to be times when serving other people will cost you something. It always costs something. If we're going to live out loving our neighbor, we need to acknowledge there's going to be personal costs. And so maybe you can relate with some of this. What does it look like to love your neighbor? Maybe your uh, pastor talks about the need to love your neighbor by inviting them to church. Invite your neighbor to church. And you think, oh, okay. This is a chance. I need to build a relationship with my neighbor. I will mow their lawn. You go to your neighbor, knock on the door. I love you. Can I mow your lawn? Yes. It's a little creepy at first, but sure, you can mow my lawn. You mow the lawn, and at the end, you've been playing the conversation in your head, and you get, okay, now's my chance. 
pastor talking about loving our neighbor, inviting them to church. And so you go and you hand your little connect card. You go up to the door and say, hey, you know what? You should come to my church. I mowed your lawn. It was hot. And uh, it would be, you should come to my church. And they look at you and they see, okay, all right, now I know why you were here. And they gently maybe close the door. No, thank you. How do you respond? All right, done mowing the lawn. <laughs> do we give up, give up on loving people in practical ways when they don't respond with how we want? Loving our neighbor in order to promote ourselves. Or maybe uh, you're wanting to serve meals. You're wanting to care for people by serving meals. And you show up at church, we're talking about loving our neighbor in practical, concrete ways, and we're going to serve them food. And you show up early, and you make a lot of food, and you do the deal, and other people come and do a little bit, but you've done a lot. And then the next Sunday, they are acknowledged, and you're forgotten. People didn't notice you there early. People didn't notice all the things you did, that you took time off of work, that you paid for the food on your own, and Another person comes as a little bit, and they get acknowledged, and no one even seemed to notice. How do we respond? Are we serving people as a way of caring for them or promoting ourselves? God invites us to serve, not to justify ourselves, but in response to his love for us. So how do we love God? We love God by learning from God. We love God um, by delighting in his commands, and lastly, we love God by receiving his love for us. In order to love for the long haul, we need to receive love. In the passage, it says that we love, that you, that love for your neighbor, you love your neighbor as yourself. Eugene Peterson, as we began, we said the volume of business and religion far outweighs the spiritual capital of its leaders. Leaders need spiritual capital, and the way in which we grow in that is by receiving God's love, proper love of self. And so as we move toward closing, I want to put this idea in front of you. When you look at the mirror, who do you see? Who do you see? When you look in the mirror, who do you see? Uh, some of us are tempted to see a little God. <laughs> to look in the mirror and think, wow, world, you are lucky. And to be narcissistic and to be self-infatuated. Others of us are tempted to look in the mirror and hate what we see. To think we're unlovable. Maybe it's from guilt. Maybe it's because... There were seasons in our life when we were on the side of the road and the person and people passed us by. And so we just feel worthless and unlovable. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? When you look in the mirror, consider this psalm where the psalmist writes, For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. When we look in the mirror, we can see... That God, our maker, has formed us. We are wonderfully made. We are loved by God. And this leads us, empowers us to love other people. You know, some of us, when it comes to loving our neighbor, uh, we don't do it. We don't do it. We pass by on the other side. 
And sometimes we don't love our neighbor because when we look in the mirror, we only see our own pain and our own problems. And we think other people are there to cater to us. Others of us don't love people in need because we don't feel empowered to it. We're like the unlovable person. We think, what do we have to offer? When we look in the mirror and recognize God loves us, we see ourselves empowered by God's love to love other people. Also, some of us, when it comes to loving other people, we overwork and we burn out. And we do this because sometimes we're narcissistic and we have a savior complex. And we think the whole world rests on our shoulders. And others of us, we get burned out and we overwork because we think we're unlovable. And so we want to enter in and do everything we can to justify ourselves, to earn love. Remember, you are loved by God. So we enter into loving others in freedom, responding to God's love for us not earning God's love for us. How is loving God empowering you to love others? Are you learning from God? Are you delighting in his commands? Are you receiving his love? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a loving God who calls us and sends us and commissions us into the work of reconciliation. Humble us, God. May we take the posture of a learner, seeking to grow and understand the ways in which you want to minister in and through us. And God, help us to delight in the work. The opportunity to serve others is good news. Lord, thank you for being a God who loves us in personal ways. That you look at us and you see us worthy of the blood of your son. May we never move past that truth. We pray this in the name of your son, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.